In this interview, I'm joined by Meido Roshi, Rinzai Abbot of Korinji Monastery, Wisconsin, and author of Hidden Zen, Practices for Sudden Awakening and Embodied Realization. In this episode, we discuss how childhood existential panic set Meido Roshi on a quest for spiritual meaning, traveling Asia to meet famous meditation masters such as Sri Munindra, Tulku Urgen Rinpoche, Chokinima Rinpoche, and Sheng Yen, before finally finding a home in the practice of Zen. Meido Roshi details his years of vigorous training, his subsequent awakening, and critiques the shortcomings of today's American Zen lineages. Meido Roshi reveals the Rinzai Zen principle of Ba, how to cultivate spiritual charisma and use it to impact others, and offers a comparison of the different flavors of spiritual charisma possessed by the masters he's met. So without further ado, Meido Roshi. Meido Roshi, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. You had a childhood interest in Buddhism, triggered perhaps uh, reading the transcendentalists such as Emerson and Thoreau, etc. I'm curious if you could say a little bit about your childhood interest in Buddhism and how it was that you then went on to formally study religion at university. And then, of course, your story proceeds from there. Yeah. Um, and, and as I've said before, in other venues, um, I, I really don't have a clear explanation for it. Um, I think running into the transcendentalists, uh, you know, for example, Emerson, and, and from that becoming aware of something like the Bhagavad Gita and from that the Upanishads, that led me to eventually, uh, I've mentioned, to have the copy of the Dhammapada in my hands. And that was the text which really struck me more than anything. But I, I beyond that, I could say that my childhood was marked by just extreme existential panic and angst <laughs> like many people and i became acutely aware of things like uh impermanence um there was one episode from my childhood that really struck me is that uh growing up where i did i was able to walk in the forest quite often and i came upon a deer carcass at one point and i was able to visit that carcass over the course of months and watch it literally dissolve well you know the carcass dries up and eventually breaks down and the, the hair scatters and eventually there's just a few bones left eventually even that is gone and that experience I still remember was kind of like the final nail in the coffin in a sense it, it drove home in a very uh, concrete manner the things I had been reading about in places like the Dhammapada that everything I could see including myself was like that uh, so that served to fan the flames of the already pressing existential panic, which I felt, I guess. Uh, so I knew that I had to follow some spiritual path, that my interest would go in that direction. I was naturally a fairly introverted, sort of dreamy kid to begin with. Uh, but Buddhism became the focus quite early. Uh, so I resolved at a young age that I was going to spend my life doing something, pursuing uh, that kind of spiritual fulfillment. I didn't know what form it would take, but I knew Buddhism was the main interest. And I also resolved that uh, I, I knew I had, I had planned to go to university. So I resolved that when I did that, I was not going to focus on a um, practical vocational path. I was going to study what I wanted to study. And that turned out to be religious studies with uh, emphasis on East Asian traditions um, or on Buddhism in general, uh, not just East Asian traditions, but Buddhism as much as one can do undergrad. Uh, that's what I pursued. And then, of course, during that time at university is when I was able to make amazing connections, meet teachers. Uh, the university became the launching pad, so to speak. So I'm not sure that's it, but uh, 
yeah, just just driven by angst as much as anything. That's interesting. You said there an extreme existential panic and angst, and I think you, then you said like most people. Um, yeah. I'm <laughs> That's curious. rather presumptuous, isn't it? <laughs> well, what sort of age range are we talking about here when you made that resolution? And also, did you have any sort of religious upbringing, uh, or was there uh, some sort of religious uh, cultural context in which you were being brought up at that time? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, I think that kind of existential questioning and angst was from a quite young age. Um, I would say third, fourth grade, something like that. Um, by the time I was in the, I would say fifth or sixth grade is when I was, I, sixth grade probably is when I encountered the Dhammapada and, and started to have that interest. But as far as the religious upbringing, I was raised Catholic, but very loosely so. Um, meaning I went to Sunday school for a couple of years. I did first communion, nothing beyond that. Uh, we, we were not regular churchgoers. I could not say there was an emphasis on Catholicism or even Christianity in the household. But I guess from a very young age, I recall even before kindergarten, uh, Christmas Eve being a, a big night of the year, of course, for kids. Uh, but I would spend it lying in bed praying and working myself into what I now recognize are kind of ecstatic states. So for whatever reason, uh, I was, I guess what I might call kind of a religious personality or tended towards that kind of uh, view, so to speak. Um, and again, I have no explanation for that. It wasn't uh, inculcated in me by my parents or anything, I guess just my character. Did you ever consider the priesthood in the Catholicism? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, you know, around that time when when I was going to Sunday school and we did occasionally go to church, um, I was enamored with the priests and uh, I, I would sit in mass and stare up at the crucifix uh, that's up behind the altar. Of course, in the Catholic church, those are often quite graphic. And um, ju again, just working myself into a kind of state, just uh, enamored with that image. So yeah, I thought about, oh, maybe I wanna be a priest or something like that. But I remember speaking to priests and also to one nun who was uh, involved in our uh, uh, Sunday school program. And I got the sense pretty quickly that what I was interested in, you know, I wanted to be like Jesus. <laughs> I wanted to talk to God. And I got the sense that uh, they didn't do that. And that wasn't what they did, that uh, something different than what I was interested in was what they were engaged in. If I had come across a contemplative brother, for example, uh, someone with a different vocation than just the parish priest, maybe it would have been completely different. Maybe I would have ended up going that direction. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine that possibility? Well, now I'm quite happy I didn't <laughs> because, I, you know, I think Buddhism fits me and uh, fits my my view. Uh, but, um, yeah, I have great respect for those folks. I still have a kind of a, a small ambition to show up at one of those places sometime and see if I can spend some time there to get a sense of their spiritual life. And certainly there, there have been a lot of uh, has been a lot of exchange between Buddhist and Christian contemplatives. So I'm interested in that. I have great respect for them. But um, I don't regret my direction. Very interesting indeed. You said that when you were younger, you encountered, in your words, deeply realized masters in the Tibetan and Theravadan traditions. And this, I think, uh, if I understood you correctly, was before your encounter with Zen proper. Correct. Um, could you talk a little bit about, about those encounters? Well, sure. Um, I first encountered 
Yeah, fantastic teachers uh, participating in the Buddhist studies program abroad in Bodh Gaya, India. I also spent some time in Kathmandu during that time. Um, through Antioch, what was then through Antioch University Buddhist Studies program, a fantastic program. And um, they had been doing that program for some years. And because of that, they had connections with various teachers. So while living in the Burmese Vihar in Bodh Gaya for uh, just about three months or so, uh, followed by some time in Kathmandu, um, teachers came to, to help conduct this program. So for a month, I got to listen to and practice with Anagrika Muninja every day, fantastic Theravadan teacher. Um, but something didn't strike me and I had no idea who he was or how important he was. Um, something didn't strike me. Also Chokinima Rinpoche, who I thought was incredibly charismatic, friendly, amazing guy, uh, had a retinue that he brought with him of fun people. Um, he struck me, I took refuge uh, under him uh, in Bogai under the Bodhi tree, he was my refuge teacher. So I had some kind of connection with him, but still something about the Tibetan Buddhist approach. And as you may know, a Tibetan Buddhist uh, teaching um, or practice session often can involve a lot of lecture and so on. Um, I was more interested in kind of really getting into the yogic aspects of practice. I, I really wanted to be sitting or doing meditation, something like that. Uh, so something about the Tibetan approach and even the Tibetan cultural uh, you know, bells and whistles also didn't touch me deeply. Although I did end up going to Kathmandu to hang out a little bit at his place. And that was where I met his father, Toko Urgun Rinpoche. Uh, very fortunate to meet him. Uh, Chokinima Rinpoche sent myself and another friend up to see him at Nagigongpa. And um, he struck me incredibly strongly. My brief time with him, just about an hour talking privately, uh, knocked my socks off, really blew me away. But again, I still didn't have the feeling, oh, this is a guy I'm going to follow. So I don't, I don't know why. I, you know, we, we'd say karma. Somehow the affinity wasn't strong there. But I'm still incredibly grateful for it. Then when I came back to the States, um, I had gotten very sick in India. So I spent some time recovering. I could eventually start to practice again. And I met uh, Shen Yen, a great Chan teacher. He was my the teacher under whom I did my first, what I would call Zen retreats, seven-day retreats at the center in Queens, New York. And uh, he also struck me incredibly deeply. He was an amazing guy to listen to. Uh, but again, something about it just wasn't my affinity. When I met my Japanese Zen teacher, the first of several, I immediately knew this is the guy I have to follow. So again, just like my initial interest in Buddhism, I have no explanation for these things. Why, why was I, even but people that I knew were great and that gave me profound experiences, why was I not struck with the feeling of wanting to actually follow them? Whereas later on, I met someone that I knew this is the guy, this is the person I have to follow. But we, we call that karmic affinity. Um, I guess something about the Japanese Zen approach fit my character to the rigor of it, the, the real sharpness and clarity of it. Um, I think I needed that. I think the cloudiness, you know, we, we have a, a thread on the Facebook group right now talking about the three poisons and which one do you tend towards? And mine was definitely a kind of delusive cloudiness and the atmosphere of clarity, the energetic intensity coming off of the teacher in the Japanese Zen tradition that I eventually met. Uh, I guess something in me knew this is the medicine that I need, even if the teachings and the abilities of those other masters unquestionably fantastic. This was the distinctive form that I needed. So I guess I gravitated towards that. It was really like a moth to the flame once I met him. So that's all I could say. I don't know why, but uh, it seemed to be the medicine I needed.
Mm. And that was Tenzan Toyota Rokoji. Yeah, and he was actually a lay teacher. He was not an ordained person, so we don't call him Roshi. And I actually didn't do my formal Zen, uh, Sun Zen Koan practice in the Rinzai tradition under him. But he was really my heart teacher, uh, the guy I spent a tremendous amount of time with for a decade, and the one who helped me to cut through a lot of stuff. Yeah. Big debt to him. Yeah, I'd like to ask you a bit about more about that relationship. But something you talk about in your book, Hidden Zen, published in October of 2020, last year, really excellent, fantastic book by Shambhala. Thank you. One of the aspects you talk about there in the direct pointing style is the ba, oh. or the, uh, to, to use perhaps a colloquial term, the sort of presence or aura of an enlightened master or advanced practitioner. Oh. And you've also mentioned that you're not a perennialist in the sense that you're not totally convinced at this idea that ultimately all the, if you want, mystical cores of all the world's traditions are heading in the same direction. Of course, oh. superficially, Doctrinally, there are obvious differences, but perennialism mm -hmm. suggests that maybe deep down they're all pointing at the same thing. And you've expressed a bit of skepticism about that idea. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, having been exposed to the ba, if you like, of someone like Munindra, uh, considered to be highly uh, realized, I think, in the Theravada tradition, someone like Tokyogin Rinpoche, Dzogchen master mm -hmm. of great renown and also your various deeply realized Zen teachers. I'm curious if you, now with your understanding of energetics and having, uh, I suppose, a very refined palette for that sort of thing, I'm curious if you can compare them at all, or if you noticed any qualitative difference in any sense. Mm. And I, you know, I don't know how refined my palette is because that question speaks also to, do I have the sensitivity to sense those things to begin with? Right. Um, I could only say what I was able to sense and whether or not that's a really refined view or not, I, I don't know. But the Muninja uh, struck me as a deeply peaceful, silent kind of energy. Uh, but again, it, it didn't struck me. And I think again, because it wasn't the medicine I needed. Tucker Ogun Rinpoche struck me deeply, however. Um, he had a kind of atmosphere around him and the experience I had around him. Um, what I now recognize uh, was him giving me a direct introduction uh, as, the, as the term is used in Dzogchen. Um, was quite amazing. And it was very similar to what I experienced later with some Zen teachers. In fact, some of the things I experienced with him and also with Chokinir who I spent more time around than him, um, even in terms of their methods of direct introduction or uh, direct pointing and so on, you know, what we call Zen direct pointing. Um, I only realized later when I experienced the exact same feeling of atmosphere and the, even the exact same methods from Zen teachers, it was only then that I realized what it was they were doing. Hmm. So I couldn't say that there was a qualitative difference across any of these people. Um, Tucker and Ergen Rinpoche in particular reminds me, when I think back on my brief experience with him, reminds me very much of some Zen teachers I met in terms of how I felt around him, that, that ba or field that you mentioned. But again, for whatever reason, my karma or my lack of discernment, uh, and that karma may not, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it is what it is. It was only when I met the Zen teachers that I could actually really catch what was going on or I could understand. Of course, that was a few years later too. I was more mature and uh, there could be many reasons for that. But you know, speaking to the perennialist question, um, I can fully believe that all of those teachers from the different Buddhist traditions were realized in a similar manner. And I can even 
I can even accept that many religious traditions have contemplative elements that arrive at the same kind of place. But I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think that's an assumption that we should automatically make. I think we make it out of idealism because we want things to be that way. We would like everyone to be nice and to get along and to say that they're all just myriad expressions of the same thing. What is pointed to in Buddhism is a human thing. It's not a Buddhist thing, that's for sure. And I can fully believe that people from other traditions arrive at it. But I also think there are some traditions that are less skillful. I think there are some traditions where doctrine and dogma uh, does become a barrier perhaps, or may prevent the practitioner from going beyond a certain point. I think uh, some traditions, or maybe, maybe I could say all traditions, at some point they have to let go of themselves as traditions to get to that ultimate point. And there may be some traditions where there's resistance to that, or that's less likely to happen. The sort of self-deconstructing aspect of the tradition is not as present in some as in others. So I'm practicing Buddhism because I believe it's the best tradition, and that's a good reason to practice it. One should feel that way about one's tradition. That doesn't mean I negate the others. But I believe that the Buddhist teachings point most clearly, most directly at what it is we're seeking. So does that make me a uh, fundamentalist or dogmatic? I don't know. I let other people decide. <laughs> but anyone's welcome to practice at our place. For example, I don't care what faith tradition they belong to. We don't, we don't try to make them into anything or make them become Buddhist or change their beliefs. So that is, you know, that's how it goes. I don't think uh, it's headline news. Buddhist Roshi thinks Buddhism is good. I don't, <laughs> exactly, I don't exactly. think that's uh, fundamentalism. No, not quite. <laughs> uh, I'd like to ask Buddhism you about... Buddhism is the best. You can use that as a headline. I'd like to ask you a bit about your book, Hidden Zen. In an interview about that book on the Shambhala site, to quote you, you said, much of what's crucial to Zen practice even today is not transmitted in publicly available texts at all, but in fact is transmitted through what we call Kuden the oral instruction given directly from the teacher to the student. So for that reason, there are lots of large parts of the Zen practice that are not widely known, even to Zen students and even to so-called Zen scholars. Hidden Zen aims to finally and perhaps brazenly, in a way, reveal some of those. And you go on in Hidden Zen to list two main categories of practice, the direct pointing teaching categories, uh, similar, as you said, to sort of direct uh, pointing out instructions one might hear about in Dzogchen or experience in Dzogchen, and also the uh, energetic cultivation practices. Many of these techniques you've said are not present in Western Zen. You've described Western Zen as having something of a sterile toolbox. And in that same interview, you said that there are historical reasons why some Zen lineages in the West perhaps did not receive a full inheritance of practice method transmission. And the two culprits that you suggest in the book are the psychologizing or secularization of Western Zen and also unqualified Japanese pioneers in the West, incomplete lineage transmission, essentially. And then you go on to write in the book, bearing such developments in mind, I'm not surprised that there have been Western Zen teachers eager in an almost puritanical manner to jettison inherited things like Zen ritual, rigorous training regimes, traditional practice clothing, pre-modern understandings of the body and so on absent an understanding of how such things are meant to function within a comprehensive path of awakening, they would indeed appear to have little value beyond whatever surface content, historic, aesthetic, or symbolic they carry. Thus toolboxes become even more bare over time, 
and rich cultures of practice for the preservation of which our Zen ancestors sacrificed so dearly can be irretrievably lost. I'm curious what you see to be the consequence in Western Zen of the absence of the sorts of techniques that you write about in Hidden Zen. Uh, plainly, lack of awakening, loss of the one crucial thing, which is the entrance gate to the Zen path, as well as the basis of the subsequent path of liberation, uh, loss of awakening. Uh, Zen is founded upon Kensho, the experience, I can use the word experience uh, loosely, I don't like it so much, but I'll use it in a common way. Experience of seeing your so-called true nature. That is what defines Zen from Bodhidharma on down. And it is what Zen practice takes as its foundation or its basis. If we lack that, if our understanding of what Zen points to is primarily intellectual, um, if it's not an experiential liberative knowledge that arises, uh, but it's a conceptual view that can seem to be liberative, but ultimately is shallow, then Zen is completely dead. And I, I'm sorry to say, I think there are Zen lineages in the West in which that is the case. There are, I know there are Zen lineages in the West where there's some recognition arising that there's a problem in this regard, and there's some discussion about it. But uh, I feel very fortunate that the lineage I happen to fall into had a vital transmission of practice methodology and a real deep emphasis upon that core, uh, indispensable entrance gate of awakening. Um, so it's it's a big problem. Um, you know, it may be a big problem in Buddhism as a whole. I, I think some of the problems that uh, I harped on in the text that you read there um, don't apply only to Zen, but um, because of some unique challenges Zen has faced. And I think also because now we have a situation where there are just too many unqualified Zen teachers being churned out in some corners of the Zen world. Uh, it seems like the tide is just rising and it, it's a very difficult problem to fight right now. So that's, again, that's why I wrote Hidden Zen is to try to give a little bit of an alternative viewpoint. The two culprits there that you suggest, this the, the psychologizing of Zen, turning it into a sort of self-improvement uh, mm -hmm. or a tool for psychological stability. But this point about uh, certain lineages that have come to the West being incomplete and that perhaps currently operating lineage holders unaware of what they've missed, what they haven't been shown. Mm -hmm. And you point to some of the pioneers of Zen in America, I suppose, primarily in the last sort of 50, 60 years, being, uh, there being discoveries about their lack of training and lack of qualification and so on. Could you Talk a bit to that point. That might be something that not a lot of people are aware of. Yeah, and I don't know if you're pressing me to name names. I probably prefer not to, but uh, I could speak, for example, there is a Rinzai lineage, which has been very active here in, in the States. Um, the founder of whom was a Japanese Zen, we call teacher or master, that is well known in Japan, never completed his training. Um, he was not viewed as a teacher in Japan. He did not have enough time to even complete the koan practice, which is a central part of Rinzai Zen training path. It's not the only part, and it's not the part that is, the, you could even say, the most important in some sense, but it's, it's an incredibly useful tool. Um, he lived in uh, Sodo, the training monastery, for a period of time that was so short that he was not able to come anywhere near completing that, and later received the Dharma transmission, legitimately so, received what we call Inka Shome, from an, from one of his teachers, 
uh, as it is said in Japan, because he needed it, because he had already started a monastery in the West and needed that status, then the hope was he would grow into it. Problem is, uh, we might say that it was later shown he didn't grow into it. And he also, what that means is, did not have the inheritance of that particular koan training method, what we call a shitsunai or traditional curriculum, to pass on to his students. And yet he certified students as Zen masters in, in turn, which means they didn't inherit that. We have a lineage now that has lost its shitsunai, has lost its koan training curriculum, and has made efforts to fill in those gaps. I've seen some documents used by that group where they have koans, uh, I don't know if they're still using them or not, but koans taken from the Bible are from Shakespeare, which is fine. We can do that kind of thing in the West, and we should, over time, develop our own koan language and literature. But what about the incredibly valuable, precious curriculum that has been handed down, especially since the time of Hakuin, that is structured in a particular way and has koans within it that are just indispensable. Uh, I think, of, for example, the five ranks koans, which really reveal the meat and the core of the Zen path. And what people need to realize also about koan training is it's not just a practice in itself. It serves as a skeleton or structure for one's practice as a whole, pointing out other practices that one has to do. So if that was not inherited and this lineage doesn't have it, and they're still calling themselves Rinzai Zen, and they say that what they're doing is Rinzai Zen koan practice. What does that mean for that lineage's future? What does it mean for the people who are training with them? What are they getting? What are they not getting? I don't have clear answers to that, but uh, we have to say, we have to point out, hey, this is what happened. And the people in Japan knew this. Didn't say anything, perhaps, in the, that Japanese manner. Uh, we have to say something. And if you are a person in that lineage and you learn about this, one would think, if you're a sincere Buddhist practitioner, that your immediate feeling would be, oh, I need to fill this gap in. I need to go learn what I don't know. Although, how can I help people? How can I deepen my own training? But what we often find instead is resistance to that, uh, clinging to the memory of the past teacher, clinging to the identity of the organization, clinging to one's status, which you don't want to compromise by admitting that you don't maybe didn't learn everything you should have and so on. So, so that's one example, okay? Um, but that's the case in a number of places. The other thing I wanted to say, and maybe going back to the psychologizing of Zen, uh, you know, no problem with psychology and psychotherapy when it's useful for folks. Um, I think sometimes it's not, I think sometimes it is. And I have no problem with looking at Zen from a psychological standpoint, but the kind of, trying our attempt to conflate Zen and psychotherapeutic method or the Zen teacher student relationship and the client or the therapist client relationship, which there has been an attempt to conflate. Um, it points to me at something deeper. It's, it's really a symptom, I think, of a remnant of Orientalism, this, this kind of real feeling that the benighted superstitions of these Asian folks can be improved by us Westerners with our modern knowledge and modern science and and understanding of the mind, which they don't have. Um, it really is kind of almost an unconscious uh, feeling of superiority and that it's our job to fix the stuff that we inherited from Asia. Uh, so that's something I always want to point out too. It's, it's really quite arrogant. People who have not plumbed the depths of these traditions and yet are in a hurry, I think, as I said, to, dis to dispose of traditional things. Uh, without understanding really what their purpose is or their function is. It must come from a, a, a real sense of arrogance. I, I have no other explanation for it. And I, I really do think it's a kind of remnant Orientalism. That's very interesting indeed.
it seems you're pointing to an attempt to essentialize Zen or extract some of its or reinterpret its key points without understanding the tradition in its own right, having taken the time do, to understand. That's what, we do when we, that's what we do when we commodify things, isn't it? Also, I want to mention that aspect too. You want to repackage it so it's easier to sell? Perhaps. Perhaps that's an aspect that's going on as well. Hmm. Given that the Zen tradition itself in Japan, and I suppose prior in a sense, has itself undergone development throughout the centuries and sometimes development pressured by market forces. Of course, in those days, perhaps things like patronage rather than, you know, <laughs> Instagram likes or something like that. And admitting that certainly one can throw the baby out with the bathwater thinking, oh, we can dispense with this and we can dispense with that. This isn't the essential Zen, in my opinion, you know, as the as the uh, innovator mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps losing then some very essential things that one doesn't even really realize what one's dispensing with. Do you nonetheless see any bathwater? Is there anything in Zen, in your opinion, that isn't essential, that that um, could be seen as sort of bathwater, sort of the opposite critique in a sense? Well, yes, certainly, and and you know we we see those changes happening, as you said, in Japan, also in the West. Um, but I think they happen, or they should be allowed to happen organically. Things get strange when we're in a hurry to rush that process. Again, because of our own ideas of the need to fix something. Uh, we hear this phrase in the United States always: "American Zen." What what is American Zen? Zen is Zen. You are an American. It's already American Zen. How can it not be American Zen if the body and mind doing it is American? Why do you need to change something to fit your idea of American Zen? It's a very strange thing to me. And that's where the baby starts to get thrown out with the bathwater, I think. Um, but, but certainly the, the constructive changes to fit one's host culture that can be looked at carefully and slowly, organically be allowed to take root. I'm no problem with that. Um, for example, at Korinji, you know, it's a big, uh, Korinji is not unique in this regard, but it's a big change from Asia in that we have people of all sexes, all gender identities training together. They even live in the same room, barracks style. You know, of course, they have their own places to change and wa private washrooms and so on. But that's right there. That's already very different. And that reflects aspects of our culture uh, in terms of gender equality and so on that I think are important to allow to happen. Um, we also have somewhat erased the distinction, continuing a trend that started in Japan in the Middle Ages, uh, between ordained and lay. I mean, those people sit together during sashin, during retreats in the zendo together. The lay people are not separate. Of course, the, the ordained people who are living there full time have a different commitment and expectation placed on them. But in terms of the training and the teacher's openness towards them, I don't care if they're wearing a robe or lay clothes. And so that also is something that's a little different. So, so that that stuff is being allowed to happen. But again, I think it needs to be allowed to happen patiently, organically. As one of my teachers says, when you plant a tree, you take the original ball of soil around the roots. Otherwise, the tree won't survive. And then you gradually let it meld with the new landscape. Uh, but to throw something out using traditional training clothes as an example, because you mentioned that from my book. Um, without understanding their function, without understanding that the traditional belt has a function in terms of the way we train the breathing, throwing it out because why Americans wear blue jeans. It doesn't make sense. Uh, so there's there's a stinkiness, there's an arrogance to that. Um, and it's also a lack of knowledge. If, if you lack the, the basic understanding 
why these things were preserved beyond just cultural form or aesthetics? What's their function in the training? If you don't have that experience or that knowledge was not given to you by your teacher, then these kind of mistakes will be natural. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think the, the process has to be organic. We can slowly drain the bathwater. We don't need to take the whole tub and go like this out of some conceit that it's our job to do so. Our job is to bring the Zen teachings to life in our body. That means to have a clear experience of awakening and to practice on a path to embody that. Everything else is secondary, that's true, but how do all of those other secondary things support that path? Our job is to see that clearly, to know before we start to tweak things and make changes. Hmm. I'm curious, something like the training clothes, for instance, that are used in Zen, of course, that's something that would not have been worn in India, in Buddhism's origins. The distinction between, say, lay and ordained, or the separation of the genders is something that seems to go back almost to the very genesis of the Buddhist tradition. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what's the difference between your changing those, it seems almost universal Buddhist protocols, procedures, mm -hmm. um, and somebody say throwing out the training clothes, which in terms of the span of Buddhist history are actually relatively recent and, and quite location specific. What's sure. the difference in that sense between the organic, presumably, modifications to the tradition that you're doing mm -hmm. and the modifications that you're critiquing in, in other American Zen teachers? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the Buddha used anything as like a meditation strap, right, to train the breathing. Um, that stuff does exist in, in Indian and Indo-Tibetan traditions, of course. I don't know how far back it goes, but it, it could be fine to throw those out too. But the point is, what are you going to replace it with? If, if it's something that has a function that supports the path, and that's part of a Zen culture, which has been developed over millennia, it would be really stupid to just get rid of it unless you're replacing with something, replacing it with something that has a similar function or that can fulfill that function. Um, so it's not that I would say we have to, for example, only wear Japanese training clothes, but we don't yet have something that works as well or that, that fulfills those same functions. Blue jeans and a polo shirt don't do it. They just don't. Now, could we come up with something here that is a maybe fits our culture a little better, doesn't look so overtly East Asian, still has the same function and works? Yeah, no problem. I guess we could do that. Um, I've got enough other stuff to do, so I haven't tried to look, <laughs> spend a lot of time doing that. And I also have a little bit of feeling kind of like, if it's not broken, why should we fix it? I mean, the Catholic Church, they're still wearing remnants of Roman era and medieval clothing as part of their tradition. The aesthetics are fine too. There's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's something to be said for the beauty of tradition and looking at the clothing and seeing the, your own history. But again, if, if those changes are to be made, the important point is we need to preserve the function. I think the, the, the question of genders, uh, sexes, uh, training together, I don't think that in our culture compromises the function. Um, so I don't have such a concern about that. But um, I think that too many things are getting thrown out without replacing them with something else. And that's not being done as a conscious choice. It's being done out of a lack of knowledge of the function of the original item to begin with. That's my, my real main concern that I wanted to hit on with that passage in Hidden Zen.
Mm -hmm. I suppose I'm still not quite clear about what the justification for the alteration in terms of lay and ordained and the gender mixing is well, that, you know, doesn't, we, we, that doesn't fall prey to the same criticism you're making of other modifications it, it, in American it doesn't may. seem to be any distinction there. I mean, it certainly could fall prey to that criticism. Um, uh, Chinese monastic uh, may certainly criticize Japanese mon monasticism in general because they're not legitimately following Vinaya. So the criticism goes back quite far in terms of the changes that happened in Japanese Buddhism. And they, uh, Japanese or uh, Chinese monastic may come to a place like Korinji and say, this is outrageous that you have men and women living in the same room. I say, okay, that's fine. I mean, so we can accept that criticism, we can work with it. But, um, you know, I, 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 my main concern is that the, the core of the path, which is the methodology to arrive at awakening as the entrance gate, and then the path methodology to embody that psychophysically. The things which support that are the non-negotiables to me. Doesn't mean they can't change, but when we start removing those supports, those are the things I have concern about. I don't think the gender or sex uh, mixing is one of those, honestly. So I don't, uh, while I could accept that criticism, it's not something that concerns me as much. Uh, the distinction between lay and ordained does exist quite strongly in terms of our expectations of them, their function, their duties, their work, their vocation, their commitment. But in terms of my openness to give the same training to all of them, um, I don't think that is taking away from anything. I don't think that's a, a, a non-negotiable. But certainly, if someone wants to devote themselves, their entire lives as a vocation to the practice, they're going to get more of my attention and energy than someone whose commitment is less uh, fervent. But I guess what I'm saying is that commitment doesn't hinge for me on what type of uh, status they have, lay or ordained. Let's talk a little bit about some of the techniques in hidden Zen. You make the point that these really rather crucial practices are unknown to uh, many Zen practitioners and even many scholars, having rarely been written down. And you also make the point that they're not hidden in the sense that they're necessarily secret or um, occult or esoteric in that sense, but more that one wouldn't sort of stumble upon them unless one was deep into a relationship with a teacher. In fact, many of these practices are post-Kensho practices, not all of them, but many of them are integrating uh, awakening practices. How is it that such practices could have been overlooked by Zen scholars, given the, the decades of interest in the tradition? How, how, could, how could this have gone unnoticed or unreported on? Well, some of them are in plain sight. Um, when you look at Cohen literature, for example, you see examples of direct pointing all the time. But if you are not someone who is engaged deeply in the practice in relationship with the teacher, you're not going to understand what that is. And you're going to look at those things from a, whatever your scholarly approach may be, whether it's literary analysis, I mean, you know, koans are remnants of Chinese literary word games. Okay, maybe, I don't know, I'm not a scholar. But that's not what's going on when Rinzai shouts or when, you know, someone hits someone with a stick or when Hyakujo's students are made to take a few steps forward and clear their throats. There's something else going on there. If you're not engaged in that practice, you just may not have the tools to grasp what that is. It's, it's as, as simple as that. Uh, most scholars are not practitioners. Um, most scholars are not terribly interested in practice uh, that I have observed. Some are. There, there are some very notable exceptions, people like uh, Sogen Hori, for example, who's a fantastic scholar as well as a very deeply accomplished practitioner. But most are not that. 
So they, they really don't have the tool set to understand the actual religious usage of these things. Uh, they can only look at them from the outside, from whatever their personal perspective may be. So uh, I think it's as, as simple as that. As far as why many Zen students in the West don't have a lot of this background, some of that is the kind of broken linear transmission we spoke about a little bit. Uh, some of it is a different emphasis that emphasis that arose in different Zen traditions relatively recently, even in the Meiji period. Uh, for example, in the Soto Zen tradition, since Meiji, the teacher-student relationship has been somewhat de-emphasized. Dokusan or Sanzen has been de-emphasized. Certainly koan uh, practice and literature has been de-emphasized. So uh, it could very well be that uh, the, the training direction of some lineages went in a direction that uh, left these things behind. Um, it only takes one generation of them not being transmitted for them to be lost completely in that lineage. So I cannot say case by case, what, what is why always, but um, the things I mention in Hidden Zen, for example, when I speak to folks from one or two other Rinzai lineages, they have similar experiences too and similar knowledge. So it's not that somehow my lineage is the only one that preserves these things, but I think it's not something one is going to encounter outside of that committed Sanzen relationship, the, the relationship which is still at the core of Rinzai Zen practice for, for what it's worth. I'd like to ask you a bit about the techniques of Hidden Zen, but just as you're bringing up the essential requirement really of a relationship with a teacher to work in this way, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your main teachers. And you list three primary teachers, Tenzan Toyota Rokuji, Dogen Hosokawa Roshi, and mm -hmm. Sozan Miller Roshi. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk about each of those teachers, what kind of men they were, and what it was like to be in that close teacher-student relationship that you've been talking about. Yeah, uh, what kind of men they are. Two of them are still alive. Um, Toda-sensei, uh, again, he was a lay Zen master as well as a martial arts teacher. Uh, and his primary interest in having come to the West was to teach Budo, to teach martial arts. He was very interested in spreading Zen as well, but he didn't want to live the life of a Zen teacher. He, he liked being a martial arts uh, teacher. Uh, but I could say, to, to sum up his character, uh, intense, intense, fiery energy, incredible focus, um, dynamic, charismatic kind of personality. Uh, died young, age 53, my age now, but uh, accomplished an insane amount within his few decades of being in the United States. Um, he was a flame. He was a burning flame, just incredibly energetic personality, very intense. The training he had done in Japan, uh, not only in the martial arts side, but he had also lived at a place called Ichikai Dojo, which still exists, a very famous uh, training center where uh, Misogi and Zen training is done, uh, a very severe form of practice. So he was someone who had been through a very intense training regimen of his own and had blossomed with it. Um, the kind of energy and fearlessness which he exhibited in everything he did, uh, I can only attribute to that experience of having grown up in post-war Japan and going through this severe training program that he did. Remarkable guy. And you lived with him, didn't you, for seven years in Chicago? Yeah, so I lived in his training hall for seven years. His training hall was both a Betsuin or branch temple of Chosenji or Rinzai Zen temple in Hawaii, as well as a Japanese cultural center and a martial arts dojo. I lived there uh, as his apprentice uh, for seven years, but actually the other three to four years that I was with him before he passed away, Although I wasn't actually living there, I was living a block away and spending 10 hours a day there anyway. So I, I eventually 
worked for him as well. Um, I spent most of every day for a decade around him, essentially. So he was the person who I think most uh, sharply trained me and affected the development of my character. You mentioned that he helped you cut through a lot of stuff. Very curious about that, especially given that it was really the beginning of your Zen training and quite a comprehensive apprenticeship by the sounds of it, all these hours. And also you, you, you've said elsewhere that, or written elsewhere, that you endured severe training in traditional martial arts from him also. So I'm curious how that factor played into the daily routine with him. And also what sort of stuff, if you can remember, that he helped you cut through? Well, again, I, I mentioned I was by nature a kind of cloudy, uh, introvert, dreamy person. Uh, anxiety, crippling anxiety to the and social anxiety to the point that I couldn't stand in front of a group and speak without shaking. Um, I lived with that kind of stuff moment by moment. And suddenly I'm in this situation. Uh, I mean, we were living, this was in Chicago, his, his uh, center, and uh, in the middle of the city. But within those walls, it wasn't the United States, it was 14th century Japan in terms of how he interacted, what he expected. Uh, I was suddenly put in a position where how I walked was critiqued, how I breathed was critiqued, how I talked, how I used my eyes was critiqued. Um, if my way of speaking was not clear or forceful enough, there could be consequences. It was immediately pointed out very forcefully, sometimes physically. I don't mean I was beaten or anything like that, but it was a situation where I was constantly in fear of getting uh, scolded, blasted by him. <laughs> and that kept me in a state of clarity. It, it burned through that cloudiness I had. And I, and I gradually could see that there was a way to be that way. There, there was a way to habitually be more clear and more present and more energetic rather than contracting, extending energy always outward. Uh, so, I mean, I can give you endless examples of how he accomplished that from throwing staplers at me to a simple cutting word, you know? I mean, the guy, he was, a, he was an intense guy and he had a temper too. But what I think what he really imparted to me more than anything was an understanding of what we call shugyo. And shugyo means in the Japanese, the Japanese word shugyo, kind of deep physical spiritual training. But practically speaking, what it means is whatever situation makes you anxious, fearful, whatever situation you are unskilled at, whatever situation reveals your lacks, your blind spots, your fears, you seek it. You go purposefully into it rather than avoid it. And for me, being around him was 24-7 that. I loved him dearly. I feared him, sometimes hated him, but I was able to use him you know, as a blade against the grindstone, some correct angle to somehow improve myself. And he was proud of that. I mean, he was a very loving person too. We had a very affectionate relationship, but um, it was hard. It was it was an apprenticeship in a, in a truly pre-modern sense of the word. And I don't know how I was able to endure it, but I got so much, so much from it. So I, my gratitude for him is boundless. Yeah, that's very clear. Very unusual to have been in such a situation. Did he ever acknowledge the, if you want, success of the way you related to that style of training, which as you say, is a classic uh, style of training and when done well is extremely powerful. Did he ever acknowledge that? Did he say, you know, you've, you've uh, made some progress here? He did two occasions. On one occasion, he did say to myself and also another one of his students who was enduring a similar apprenticeship, he said, you guys are my true successors. And we kind of looked at each other like, I think he's praising us. <laughs> so not used to that. I, 
I do think he was proud. Um, on one other occasion, he, he did say, much to my shock, I don't have anything else I can teach you. Now it's all a question of you maturing, using it. So that was a, very liberating for me in a sense um, to feel like, oh, I actually got something from him that I can, I can now work with. In other words, I think what he was trying to express to me was it's no longer time for you to be dependent on me. It's time for you to use what you got from me. So he had the clarity to say that and to let go of his student a little bit by saying that. I respect him for that very deeply. Yes, that's very unusual indeed. I'm still curious about the martial arts aspect uh, of the training. Enduring a severe training in traditional martial arts to sound such a, such a great phrase. I'm curious about what that entailed. And I'm also curious, and I, I say this with utmost respect, this sort of training, not the training you received, of course, but this style of training has been criticized on occasion, but when it is ineffective of perhaps being uh, abusive or something of that nature. And, and surely uh, at some point, so, so that some teachers have, to, have used it in that way for their own sort of power trips and so on. Obviously not in this case. What would you say to a person attracted to that sort of training, but would like to perhaps have a tip, some tips in differentiating between the sort of training you receive from Toyota Sensei and the, the other, so we say, lesser grade stapler throwing that one might encounter in other situations? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say the stapler throwing was skillful, <laughs> but I would say that I was able to use it. So one thing I would say is it comes back to the student, even if the situation is maybe not as clean as it should be, can you still use it in a productive way? So we can always look at ourselves that way. That doesn't mean you should endure injustice or, or abuse or anything like that, but we part of the equation is how we take something. So that's what Shugyo means. But the difference between uh, what we might call harsh or severe training, very sharp training and bullying, cultures of bullying or cultures that are abusive, there's a difference in tone. Um, there's, a, there's a real stinkiness to the latter that I think I think we do have a nose for. So if something feels really wrong in the teacher's intention, uh, if there isn't uh, some kind of real compassion or, or and also logic behind what they're doing, and if it doesn't, if they're not able to change quickly. So for, for example, Toto Sensei, he could blast me, uh, you know, yell, do something very uh, uh, harsh to point out something that I did incorrectly or to snap me out of my cloudiness. Sometimes he would yell just because I needed that energetic burst, not because he was angry. He would do that. And then a moment later, it was as if the clouds had passed and he'd be laughing and, and the energy would change. So he was not himself stuck in, in any of those modes. A teacher who's habitually bullying or demeaning, uh, that's obviously a, a flag, a red flag. Demeaning is a red flag. I can't say he ever demeaned me or impugned my personhood. I could say he criticized me. Uh, he told me what he thought was wrong with me, <laughs> what I needed to work on, making no bones about it. But I never felt he didn't respect me as a person. And I also never felt like I couldn't leave if I wanted to. There was no feeling of manipulation. Uh, oh, you know, you can't get anywhere without me. You better just stay here. Never anything like that at all. I knew I was always free to go. The door was open. He made that very clear too. If you want to be here to do the training, you're here 100%, 100% do it. If you don't want to be here, go. It's okay. You're always saying things like that. So th th those might point to some ways I think we could differentiate the difference. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you. Okay, I'll ask one last time. 
enduring a severe training in traditional martial arts. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, what 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 uh, did that look like actually? Uh, three to four hours a day of of training, martial arts training, along with the Zen training and and maintaining the facility and all the other stuff that a live-in or residential training does. Uh, his style of martial arts was extremely dynamic and and I would say pretty practical or little harsh. I mean, uh, he 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 was an Aikido master, but he liked a pre-modern or pre-war style of Aikido. I guess you could say. Um, we did a lot of training, a lot of traveling and teaching together. I would be what's called his otomo, which means his uh, attendant as well as the main person he throws when he demonstrates. So I have endless memories of being hurled through the air and crushed to the ground repeated times while people ooh and ah, and I was 20 something years old. It was painful. It was difficult. I mean, I don't know how many times I've vomited because of working out so much, but I also thrived on it. I loved it. You know, I was hungry for it. So for a certain person and a certain age, I couldn't do it now or even in my 30s or 40s. I had to be that age for that kind of training. It was it was wonderful. It was amazing, um, in, incredible and incredibly difficult. But what I got from it again, again, the med, going back to the medicine that somehow I needed, the sharpness and the clarity of the martial atmosphere and the situation of two people facing off each other and all the, the bullshit that falls away in that situation, even when it's just simulated, the life or death energetics of it really something that I wanted and I thrived with. They helped me a great deal. So yeah, we worked out a lot. We did a lot of martial arts, um, a lot of injuries, a lot of physical stuff, the same way anyone who's doing any kind of extensive physical training might have someone who's training for a marathon or doing training for, for gymnastics, competitive gymnastics, not unlike that, nothing unusual, but Severe enough that every day I had to make the conscious decision, oh, okay, I'm going to keep doing this. Every day I had to decide I'm going to go back down on that mat and take whatever comes. But of course, gradually I got better and stronger too. And eventually I became a teacher and the people started to view me that way. That was really an eye-opening <laughs> to be on the other side of the equation and understand his state of mind more. And also the real compassion he had, even in those situations which were very martial. He was trying to impart the principle of something not just some kind of old techniques. Yeah. So very interesting. Mm. For me, it worked. Yeah. Very interesting. Hosokawa Roshi. Yeah, so Hosokawa Roshi was the main Dharma successor of Omori Sogen Roshi, who's the teacher who transmitted our lineage to the West. And he had relocated to Chosenji in Hawaii, uh, eventually became the abbot there. Uh, so he was the main teacher coming to do Sashin for us in Chicago at the Branch Temple, the Betsuin that Toyota Sensei was in charge of. So right from the beginning of my time in Chicago with Tore-sensei uh, Tore directed me to start doing Sanzen, koan practice with Hosokawa Roshi. Uh, so he's the person I did most of my years of Sanzen with. Um, very different character. Uh, he was not so much a martial artist person. He had an intense energy. He does still have intense, uh, what we call ki or vibration, but um, more refined, uh, straightforward personality, but not a fiery, intense flame, uh, something a little softer about him, but maybe a little more refined at the same time. He was a master calligrapher, so that, that could explain a little bit about that too. But very compassionate guy, uh, not a guy I would say bent over backwards to make things easy for people, but uh, I think he, he had a kind of root of compassion. I got a lot out of, tremendous amount of training with him. Um, he's still alive. He's uh, retired now, but he still visits us and advises us. 
and has done a lot of work, especially with us to transmit an understanding of the kinds of training forms that I talk about in Hidden Zen. Why do we use the clothing this way? What is koan training for? What is a koan curriculum? What's the structure of it? Um, what does it mean when we hit the taku, the blocks, and strike the inkin, the bell, to begin sitting? It's not just timekeeping. How do we use those sounds? Why are those sounds chosen and not other sounds? And so on. The kind of inner workings of the Zen forms. He's the one, more than anyone, who gave that to us from his own experience training in Japan. So incredibly grateful to him for that. And much of those details you include in the book Hidden Zen, uh, yeah. the clothing, uh, the certain liturgical functions, the, the sounds, and, and even day-to-day -day bodily functions are yeah. um, instructed on. You give, you give the teachings around those. It's very fascinating. And you're, uh, the last on the list here is Sozan Miller Roshi. Yeah, before I mention Miller Roshi, just to your last comment, a lot of what's in Hidden Zen, if I were to trace back when I first heard it, it would probably be a Dharma talk or conversation with Hosoka Roshi, honestly, over the years. His way of giving Taisho, Dharma talks during Sashin, was informal. He wouldn't usually give formal Taisho on a koan or something, but he would stand up and say, do you have any questions? And then he would start to talk about aspects of our training. So he was very generous, very generous. Uh, so Sozan Roshi uh, originally still is a, a very good friend. We grew up as training brothers. He's older than I am. He's always my senior, uh, doing Zen and also Aikido together in Chicago. And uh, he eventually finished his koan practice under Hoskao Roshi and was appointed the abbot of the Zen place in Chicago, now known as Dayu Zenji. Uh, he finished his training right at the time that Hoska Roshi was retiring from teaching. I had not yet finished my koan training. So Hoska Roshi directed me to finish my training under him. And that was an amazing experience for a couple of reasons. One is that um, we were close friends and now then we then had to figure out how to be teacher-student, uh, you know, to, to have a dual relationship. And it turned out it was quite comfortable. Um, you know, he's, a, he's, an amazing, he's a very, also a very generous, very fair, very kind, compassionate person. Uh, and because we had a fondness for each other, it was very natural in a sense to, to within the Doksan room or the Sansan room to switch into that mode and start to, to explore koan practice together that way. Um, the other thing that was amazing about it is he was the first teacher I had finally who spoke English as his native tongue. So suddenly to do koan practice with someone who, who could understand anything I said, <laughs> any answer I may try to present to a koan, he could catch the subtleties of it as an English speaker. That was really interesting too. So I'm very grateful that I had that experience of training with native Japanese as well as a native English speaker. Yeah, I eventually finished my training under him and received the Dharma seal from him. Uh, so those three teachers, they couldn't be more different in some ways. But I feel like between the three of them, I was blessed with a real uh, kind of multifaceted jewel of an approach to the practice. Mm, very interesting. Do you yourself speak Japanese? No, I spoke a little bit in the past. I spoke more during my training time with Twitter Sensei. We would sometimes speak a mixture of Japanese and English together. Uh, most of it was probably unsuitable Japanese, but no, I, I don't retain that at all. A couple of questions then about some of the exercises and principles of, in, in Hidden Zen. And I would encourage the listener if what Meiro Roshi has been talking about is interesting to get that book because it's really quite a lot in there and we're not going to be able to do it justice with my questions. But uh, these two general categories, these direct pointing and the internal energetic cultivation and the direct uh, pointing uh, has three subdivisions, the bodily or physical means, which usually involves getting hit with a stick of some sort, the verbal or sonic means, 
all kinds of ways in which speech or even just making loud sounds can affect, well, it affects actually several things. Perhaps I'll ask you about that. And also the extraordinary means. These techniques can be used to bring the student to the four different points of the path, beginning with basic clarification all the way up to post Kensho practices. Could you talk a little bit about that progression that one would go on in the path and how, for instance, a direct pointing technique might be used to support each of those phases? Sure. So again, this, we cannot say the Zen path is the same for everyone, but there is kind of a general progression that we sketch out. And if we say that awakening or Kensho is the really the entrance into genuine Zen practice, Zen practice with a capital Z, so to speak, and that all the subsequent practice is based on that. The first concern is, well, how does the teacher bring the student to, to arrive at that? as soon as possible at, as at the beginning of the path. So the kind of direct pointing practices there can become a way, if the student is ripe, it's possible for them to have that experience. But at least we can use those practices to point out to them and to help them to experience more frequently the kind of natural clarity, which we all have. And that natural clarity, um, it's not awakening, but it can become the basis to cultivate the state of meditative absorption, what we call samadhi. Samadhi also is not awakening, itself but in that state of meditative absorption our sort of habitual dualistic way of seeing or habitual ignorance is less binding uh, we can we might say it's more permeable the subject object way of experiencing for example can become less strong or even fall away for a time so the more we can cultivate and sustain samadhi the more we start to dissolve the obstructions the habitual obstructions to awakening and also the, the more we develop a, a state of ripeness uh, so a direct pointing can help to can help with that as well. And at some point, that samadhi state becomes very profound. We enter this very ripe condition, and when that samadhi shatters, is when the experience we call kensho can occur. That direct pointing methods at that point can be the means to cause that shattering. So, very common example, for example, if the teacher can see that a student is in a particular state of absorption, and catches the right timing to create some shock, whether it's with the voice or the blow with the stick or a, a cutting word at the right moment, we can cause that samadhi condition to shatter and they can arrive at the recognition we call Kensho. So, so those, those are different ways we can use it, but uh, I guess that maps out a little bit the, the, the path up through Kensho. After that, the, the Rinzai Zen path classically uses koan practice to refine Kensho, to revisit continuously, to look at it from different aspects, to reveal the places that trip you up. If you are by habit an analytical person, there are koans which are traps for that. If you're by habit not an analytical person, there are koans which will force you to be that or to use words or to use actions, energy, whatever your predilection is, the koan training will, will challenge that a little bit. So that becomes a way to embody it and deepen it. And then of course the koan method, as I said, it also serves as a structure or skeleton pointing out different other practices like the practice of the jewel mirror samadhi, which is where we really make our own or integrate the awakened way of functioning in daily activity and so on. And direct pointing practices in that stage become a way to revisit, uh, you know, to, to return to Kensho, or if we lose that, we fall away from that understanding to kind of snap back to it, almost in the way that we could snap out of a dreamlike state and once again, return to the awakened sort of awareness. Um, so if that answers your question, I think, there's no one fixed way to use these things. They're all spontaneous, skillful means. My way to sort of map them out or explain them the way that I did is really uh, 
something I got from my teachers, but I don't want people to be rigidly fixed on it. It's just a way to understand how these things can function. But an individual student, the progression may be different. Someone can arrive at Kensho spontaneously with no prior practice. Then they're gonna to have to cultivate the samadhi condition and understand what their intrinsic clarity is so that they can sustain and refine that experience. Every person could be a little different, but I guess the path I sketched out in light of those methods is what I would call the most general or classic way that people progress through the training. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between the shattering of samadhi and say, becoming distracted during one's meditation. What's the difference between that and a shattering of samadhi that leads to a Kensho? So the, the classic uh, moment of shattering samadhi, the samadhi is quite profound. Um, Hakuin, great Zen master, described a deepening state of samadhi where we start to experience, and we live, this is literally, it's a very literal description. We experience the world as if it were crystalline or white. Everything turns white, literally to the eye turns white. Everything is, is still. Um, there's no, there are actually no thought activity. There's no real um, uh, possibility of distraction at that point. The samadhi condition has deepened sufficiently. Even the breathing will seem to cease. Although of course it doesn't cease, but we experience, I'm like, feels like I'm not breathing or we, we remember later on, it seemed like I wasn't breathing. That's a, that's a interesting point when the Samadhi comes to that place. It's, you can look around the room and although you're seeing people and objects on the floor and the ceiling, it's almost as if, you know, that experience where you stare at your hand long enough that it's no longer a hand <laughs> or you stare at a word so long it no longer makes sense. Things appear almost that way. So I, I've described it, my own experience in this manner, that the floor was there, but there was no way one could step on it. Uh, people are there, but there was no way one could ever speak to them. You know, so it's not that one is not aware, but there's a shift. That's that. That's the entrance into a profound samadhi. If at that moment one continues to really pour energy into the method of practice, eventually the senses, the body, everything disappears, and there's the state we call the great death, Akwin described as being black like lacquer. Time and space drop away completely. That's those two samadhi states, the one leading into the other are the really ripe place. If one is in those states, and especially the latter, one falls into that profound uh, depth of samadhi. At that moment, if it's suddenly shattered, a kind of shocking stimulus, and one suddenly comes back to life from that place, there's the possibility for a sudden recognition that what my actual nature is, is boundless, not tied up with self, not I in the manner that I experienced in that samadhi, if, if that makes sense. What, what, I want to, what I want to clarify is that the, the samadhi state, even that very profound one, is not awakening. Awakening is the moment we come out from it and we come back to life. And once again, there is a floor, a ceiling, people, birds, clouds, whatever. But we have a different recognition because we came out suddenly from that state. It, that recognition is most likely when we come out from it suddenly. Um, that's why it's such a ripe moment and it's important for the teacher to see it, to use one of those methods. If we don't come out from it suddenly, we, we just kind of gradually, it dissipates and we come out from it back to a normal state of consciousness. We may lose that opportunity and we may have kind of a slight memory of, of being in a deep condition, but it's, uh, the turning around and the recognition doesn't happen in the same manner. So that's an interesting, very interesting method that developed through long, uh, 
centuries of people observing each other doing this kind of practice. But that's one of the purposes of that direct pointing is to cause that shattering. I, I hope I described that clearly. <laughs> Very clearly, yeah. What are the prerequisites or preconditions and actually obstacles to that sort of meditative absorption that you're describing, that uh, white light style absorption and that deeper dark absorption? Well, one has to practice sufficiently, first of all. And, and if we want to make a distinction between lay and ordained folks, we can say that probably ordained folks practice more. Uh, it can be more challenging for lay folks to practice sufficiently. You may not arrive at that kind of condition practicing a half hour a day. You may need to do more. Um, so, so that's one thing. How one is regulating one's life. I mean, classically, the precepts are, are looked at as a nest to, to allow and to protect samadhi. Uh, if one is constantly intoxicated, for example, it's not going to happen. So we have to look at common sense stuff like that. But I think the correct instruction from the teacher in terms of the practice method is crucial. Um, the teacher should be able to guide the student along that path of practice, observing the signposts of it coming to fruition and helping to get things back on track when they go off track. That relationship is really important. Um, other than that, you know, everyone has their own unique obstructions and obstacles, which we can prescribe remedies for or make it, you know, give advice for. But I think what it really comes down to is the sufficient amount of correct practice, correctly guided practice. And I finally want to say something, Hoskaro, she said that um, in almost all cases, if someone's practice does not come to fruition, assuming they've received correct instruction, it's because their core aspiration or their motivation is not strong enough. So that's where in the Rinzai path, we're classically advised to return again and again to the four vows, the Bodhisattva vows, as the drivers of our aspiration, um, to not avoid or shrink back from our kind of existential questioning and our deep feeling of, ah, what is this? You know, to really go into that and use that energy to, to fuel the practice. Um, if we're practicing half-heartedly or with motivations that are ultimately self selfish and don't encompass others. If we don't have some basic background in the Buddhist view of things, you know, for example, if we don't accept that things are transient and, and we don't have a sense of the urgency of the transience of my own life and that I should use this life as best I can in a wise manner to, to understand what a human being is. If we don't have that kind of core motivation, I think we're unlikely to practice to the extent that is required. So, so I could say motivation, aspiration, would be the foundation. But beyond that, have a good teacher, receive the correct instruction, and just do it. Do a lot of it as much as you can. You know, in your work as a teacher, I'm sure you receive beginners, but also people who've meditated in some way or another with some tradition or other or by themselves, perhaps for some time and put a lot of time into it. I'm curious if there are, if you notice, let's say, particular bad habits that passionate meditators who come to you often have that you have to correct something you have to correct quite a lot or indeed perhaps a particular technique or meditation approach that's productive in its own right perhaps but counterproductive to this style of working of getting into this these deep uh, samadhi states i guess there are as many as there are people and if i talk about them i could also talk about my own of course but um what seems to be a real obstacle whether this is cultural or generational or you know what what feeds this um a real resistance to giving oneself over to instruction or advice 
um, a real feeling in, in individualism, a very deeply entrenched individualism, that Zen must be a kind of universal principle that anyone can discover, so I'm going to do it on my own. And even many students, if they enter into a teacher-student relationship, I find that when they are given practice instruction, they still try to stay, you know, go out on their own and, and try to figure things out on their own rather than following the instruction. And it does, it becomes tiresome, I think, for teachers sometimes to remind students, no, there's reasons these things were handed down. Please try to do what we, what we taught you to do. Uh, but what, but the student will often come into the Doksan room and say, well, you know, I took the advice you gave me and then I just, then I felt this way. So I decided to try this. And to me, that's just such a, a horrible, tragic thing that the teachings which are being handed to someone literally on a platter handed down for millennia at great cost and sacrifice are just not being engaged with deeply. So um, I, I think someone has to set aside their own inclinations, their own feelings of what's right and what's not right in terms of praxis, um, their own comforts. Um, they have to acknowledge that the fundamental view that we're working with is, hey, I'm a deluded and I'm probably the person least qualified to prescribe what I should be doing for myself. So the trust in the teacher has to be cultivated, uh, at least a, a sufficient trust to really take the practice instructions and with great effort, all one's being, not holding back at all, try them, put them into practice. When that happens, then the, the, the signs of fruition start to arise and then people start to gain confidence and faith and, and things start to really snowball. But getting over that initial uh, hesitance to take advice from another, I don't know if that's a dis something distinctively uh, tied to one culture or country or another, I don't know, but it, it just seems to be among the most common obstructions. You know, everyone wants to have, wants to meet Yoda or whatever, but uh, you know, you don't, you want, if you meet Yoda, you got to do what he says. <laughs> if you don't, what's the purpose of, of, of having that romanticized image of going to train with a teacher if you're not going to follow the instructions? There's a self-negation that's inherent in that relationship. Uh, we have to be willing to enter that. Otherwise, it's a waste of everyone's time. Yeah, very interesting indeed. I'd like to ask you a bit about Ba, one of the extraordinary means of direct pointing that you write about. And to quote you, in Zen, this presence is referred to as the teacher's ba or field. Within that field, the effect that great Joriki, Samadhi power, unified with awakening, has upon the conditions of those nearby can be decisive. It's no secret that our minds and bodies affect one another in subtle ways by means of energetics, unconscious physical cues, and so on. In this case, it's the miraculous functioning of awakened mind that arranges the surrounding conditions such that the minds of the students can also change, much as a strongly vibrating string on a musical instrument causes adjacent strings to sympathetically vibrate. You've also talked about a sort of training that a Zen teacher undergoes in how to use voice and one's presence to actually impact students. Uh, you talk about uh, certain custom in Rinzai sessions of the Roshi, or the lead teacher in that context, will join the students for a short period of time in the main sitting and then leave again. And in that period of time, his job is to blast the room with his ba, I guess, uh, with his ba. 
And so, and there's a sort of training in how to do that. I'm curious about that because one hears these stories, of course, of encounters with spiritual masters of various stripes and their profound spiritual charisma. Stories, for instance, often I think of the 16th Karmapa in that regard, who was known for his uh, presence, or Ramana Maharshi, or even more controversial figures such as Muktananda, the Siddha Yoga guru, or, or even Western spiritual figures such as Adida. Adida was known for his Shaktipat potency, um, and indeed was one of the key aspects of uh, conversion. To experience such a power is, in a certain sense, proof of concept. What is going on there? What is the sort of a training that a Roshi would receive in, in doing that? In other words, is, is it possible to have a great spiritual attainment, but have very little situational impact, very little sense of spiritual charisma? Mm -hmm. uh, do they come hand in hand, or is there a technique to it? Is it possible to replicate that sort of spiritual charisma without the attendant deep realization, for example? Mm -hmm. I think Otoka Urgenrinpoche also was someone who had that very strongly also. Um, so I think it's possible. Okay. Ba speaks to a certain embodied quality of realization. I think it's possible for someone to have a profound experience of awakening, but to not have integrated it bodily, to not have the attendant uh, sort of energetic cultivation that is part of a Rinzai Zen training. Uh, so in that sense, this is someone could be deeply realized or have had some deep experience at least, but you may not be as affected by their presence. It's also possible, I think, for someone to have that energetic quality, even through certain kinds of practices, but to not have a profound awakening or to have had one awakening that then was not deepened and refined and ultimately faded and became an object of attachment, even went the wrong direction. I think some cult leaders may have had a natural energetic or bodily charisma, perhaps coming out from practices they've done, or just natural. Some people just have that kind of thing naturally. But the, the clarity of the awakening wasn't there. And that can be something that quite dangerous, obviously. Um, when we talk about Ba from the Rinzai Zen standpoint, all I could say is that the awakening is not considered complete or legitimate unless it penetrates the body. Because our practice is yoga and psychophysical, I harp on that endlessly in the book. Um, we have to see that evidence of transformation in the physical form as well as the, the person's inner state. Uh, so someone who has done that, somehow something changes in their presence. I, I translated by as field. That was the word my teacher, Hoskar Roshi, used. And it's one translation for that word. But I don't want to, I realize afterwards that if we use the word field, people start to think energetic field, like something's coming out from the teacher. It's more like the presence. It's the way that the environment changes in tone or feeling around such a feeling, such a person. It's not necessarily that there's some electromagnetic rays coming out from or something like that, in other words. Um, all I could say about it is that it becomes very clear to the student in Sanzen. Sanzen is the place where that is used. The, the theory behind Sanzen or Doksan, that the, the core, which I would call the core practice of Rinzai Zen, more than meditation, more than seated meditation or Zazen, our core practice is what's called Sanzen, going to the teacher in that small room and encountering face to face. Maybe someone in a Hindu tradition would call it Darshan or something like that. Um, meeting face to face, eye to eye, and exploring the Dharma together. The whole theory behind that is that the presence of the teacher alone should be able to transform the student. The teacher, him or herself, has to be in the profound samadhi condition, resting upon their experience of clear awakening. 
Okay, so that's what's supposed to be happening. I can't say what's the actual mechanism. All I can say is that experientially we know it happens, um, like two strings vibrating. When you go into that situation with such a person, you may find commonly, for example, suddenly you can't think. Thoughts have stopped arising. Or you may go to speak and suddenly you find you cannot speak at all. Words won't, won't form in your mind and won't come out. Something's happening because of the presence of the person. It's not just because I'm anxious around them or you know, I have a lot invested in them, in them and or have an image of them. Something about that room feels different and you can even feel it as you're walking to the room. Something about that place is a little strange. That's what we call Ba. Um, the training to do it really comes, the recognition of what's going on comes in Sanzen first as the student. And then the, the episode you mentioned or the time during the monastic day you mentioned where the teacher comes into the Zendo and walks around and then sits with them and blasts the room. That's called Kenton. Um, yeah, the teacher is consciously there. If I talk more about what they're actually doing and how we train it, the teacher is using the breathing and their own training background in a particular manner to sort of meld or extend their uh, condition into the surrounding space. There's a sensation of melding one's mind with the environment. Not, not consciously to affect anyone, but just effecting that. There's a way that one learns to do that, which is first experienced in Samson. But when you do that, I'm sitting in the teacher's seat now, so I have that experience of both sides. When that happens, and I have to be in, a, in that condition. I mean, if I'm hungover and, and cloudy and not dialed in, it's not going to happen. I have to be clear. When I'm able to do that, using the breath to create a certain vibration and extend the, my condition into the environment, I can look down the row of the people sitting and see them all start to change. Their posture will start to subtly shift, even without them knowing. You can see their eyes change. You you come to understand that when I come to, came to understand that when I felt that the room changed, talking to them later, they would all experience at the same moment. Yeah, the room changed at that moment. And they would, uh, it would mirror the exact moment where I felt that change. So just to, you know, experientially, I think Sanzen is the place where that is first known. And then when one becomes a teacher, using the oral instruction from one's own teacher about what happens in Sanzen, how to use the breath and so on, you start to see if you have some kind of capacity, I can do this. Someone comes into the Sanzen room and, and I recognize again and again, over time, when I'm in a certain condition, they can't speak, or they're suddenly clear, or the anxiety which was uh, haunting them suddenly drops away, and they report that to me, that that happens. So there's kind of that mutual recognition, and verbally we tell each other, what did you feel during that time? Sanzen and Kenton are the places where you really learn to do that. But uh, the thing I think a lot of people don't know, which I point out in Zen, is that those two institutions, or those two practices, Sanzen and and Kenton, when the teacher comes into the Zendo and blasts the room, as you kind of accurately said, the understanding of what's happening there rests upon that. It's it's a time where the mere presence, the Bob, the teacher, is meant to transform the student. So if there are Zen lineages that have lost that understanding, it's a really tragic to me. Uh, then it becomes just an empty form. Yoksan or Sanzen becomes just a conversation or, or a therapeutic conversation. Kenton, where the teacher comes into the room, becomes an inspection. I'm inspecting their posture. What's going on under the surface there? It all goes back to what's the what's the inner state of the teacher. And 
I don't know why or how to explain the mechanism of it, but how do those two strings start to vibrate? We just experientially know that they do. And uh, it was really eye-opening to me to understand or to start to see that I was able to do that in the same way I experienced from my teachers. The only way that happened was from the immersive contact with them for so long, I guess at some point, the second string kept vibrating. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, that's fascinating. Are you able to tune that? For instance, stopping thinking, bah, if someone's coming in with a lot of thinking or quelling anxiety, bah, or you know, waking somebody up, giving them a shock, bah, or does, do you have a generic uh, means of emitting that accomplishes whatever is necessary? For Doksan or Sanzen, you know, where they come into the interview room, I try to inhabit a, or try to rest in a particular condition coming out from my training. I can't say that when someone comes in and I see who it is, I start to think I should do this or this or this. There's a more spontaneous quality to it. In fact, if it becomes too conscious like that, I think it falls away from being genuine direct pointing. It becomes a little too artificial and, and, and stinky in a way. Uh, but I try to create that general place of clarity within that that environment so when they come in whatever needs to drop off may drop off and then as the conversation comes out maybe we're talking about a koan or you know they're presenting an answer to a koan or i i discern that there's a particular condition there that needs to be shattered or shocked or something like that i can't say that i plan it or think about it but it happens so that's the spontaneous quality of it is also very mysterious it's a quality we call myo or wondrous miraculous it has to come out from the clear seeing of the teacher. If I'm not clear that I, I will, I will miss those chances, those opportunities. It's not something you plan ahead of time necessarily. Uh, but the moment where it becomes clear that this means will help, the means is coming out already. So that speaks also to the state that the teacher has to be in, which is not a, a, a scheming or a, a planning kind of relationship in terms of what I'm going to do for this student when they come in later. It's very spontaneous and very natural in the moment of what somehow we very wondrously discern is required. It's remarkable. Yes, I have a couple more questions. As I've said, the Hidden Zen book has quite a number of practices, uh, many practices of integration of awakening and uh, building energetic potency in the body and so on. Of course, in the limited time we have, I'm asking about some of the practices that really produced a lot of questions. And one of those was you talk about this practice of walking in places that are frightening, walking in frightening places. And you yourself recount being frightened of the forest at night. So you would walk in the forest at night and apply various different practices. One of the practices that you applied was a walking and holding your hands uh, facing downwards and breathing through the hands and the feet. Uh, you describe it as to quote you when the hands are held in this manner, it's possible to feel the earth and one's surroundings, even in complete darkness. One finds with practice that unseen obstacles will be effortlessly avoided. To practice this in the past, I trained myself by walking barefoot in the pitch black through an area where a quantity of broken glass and rusted metal lay. Somehow I remained free from injury and retracing my steps in daylight was always surprised to see in what manner I'd been able to intuitively avoid obstacles and pitfalls. Eventually, I even felt confident enough to run barefoot at full speed through the dark forest. There are many other such things one could do, but I believe the general principle of this practice has been made clear. What is the purpose of that practice in terms of the, its training outcome? It brings to mind the uh, idea of cities, 
apparently uh, supernatural or supernormal powers that course throughout the history of world mysticism uh, mystics and saints and, and adepts of various kinds are said to have be able to activate uh, some come online passively and some can be cultivated through certain practice formulae i'm curious if you would consider this to be in the category of siddhi mm. and uh if siddhi is something that's cultivated actively so i suppose the, the the question is what's the purpose of this particular practice and how does siddhi fit into the rinzai tradition at this upper end of the practice um, we don't use that word so much. Um, I don't know what the Japanese language equivalent of city is, to be honest. <laughs> but the fact that I don't know speaks to the fact that we don't use it so much. But we recognize that those kind of phenomena happen uh, when you've got people doing this kind of intense meditative practice. Um, and my teachers, several of them, or other teachers and teachers I met, did demonstrate things that I later did say to myself, oh, those are like cities. Uh, the, the very unusual things. I don't have explanation for all of them. Like I mean, the purpose, of that, the purpose of that practice really was to cut through fear. And the, the way to cut through fear was is to, in that situation for me, was to immerse myself in the fearful environment, energetically, physically, mentally, rather than flee from it in any aspect. And one of my teachers, Hoskar Roshi, uh, taught that the way of bringing the so-called key energy or energetics to the hand and ways of using the hands that way because we had a lot of people around who were body workers, healers. So sometimes that kind of aspect of things would come up. So I learned that that was true, um, but I, I learned that when I did that in a certain kind of situation, my sensitivity to the environment, my ability to discern what was going on in the environment, even when I couldn't see clearly, was increased. I really felt like I could feel the ground. Feel the ground. So I'm just speaking experientially there. I don't have a theory behind it. But that kind of stuff happens. It's not uncommon at all in Zen practice. I suspect it's not uncommon any place people are doing deep cultivation of this kind. Um, we didn't talk about that stuff in terms of something to be sought, you know, in terms of this practice will produce this city. But we did talk about those kind of phenomena often in, time, in terms of energetics, in terms of Tanda and the Naval Energy Center, how the breath cultivation creates a certain effect in the body-mind and the unusual stuff that happens when you do that. Uh, it's very unusual stuff. Interesting stuff, sometimes useful stuff, but never stuff that we focused on as a uh, sought fruition or something, certainly not anything to get attached upon at all. I know the trend in some Zen uh, circles is to describe anything unusual as makyo, illusion. Some of these things are not illusion at all. And even a Zen priest has to learn certain ceremony or ritual for dealing with supernatural phenomena, things that many people may not necessarily believe exist, but we recognize there are unusual things that happen and we should have the power and the ability through ritual, through use of mantric sound, through use of the body to change those conditions or to, to, to help someone. Uh, so it's baked into the tradition. Uh, we don't get attached on it, but uh, talking about makyo or illusion or delusion, I wanna, I wanna stress that, that there are unusual things that happen that aren't illusion, they're happenings. But I guess the style of Zen is not to seek them as uh, signs of fruition. We, we always go back to or return to the core fruition of experiencing your nature and then integrating that, experiencing your nature, integrating that in Samadhi. Recognizing that when you do that, weird stuff, <laughs> weird stuff sometimes happens. Does, it, does that answer your question? Certainly. Can you think of an example of 
uh, a weird thing that your teacher did that you look back and thought at the time you thought that's kind of like a city so this was this was a teacher um not my teacher but a teacher who's connected to a branch of our lineage um i had a personal experience with him of his ba hanging out around him and finding that i couldn't speak or talk at all and the moment that i experienced that he looked at me and he said what's your condition right now and i tried to speak and i couldn't and he laughed and he said yeah that's why people like to be around me so that was pretty interesting yeah but that teacher there's another story about him very interesting story uh, in terms of his use of energetics uh, that people would experience around him that his physical body could become transparent. They would glance over at him and see the bookcase through his torso, for example. And that kind of thing would happen. And uh, reportedly, one person wrote about it. Uh, he acknowledged that and said, yeah, when I do this kind of stuff, it gives me the runs. And he had to leave the room. <laughs> so he's using his, his body breath in a particular manner. Uh, I think in that case, consciously, that's something we, you know, want to say, talk about the city of invisibility connected to the mantra of Marishten, for example. There's maybe someone who could do that. <laughs> I never experienced that with him. But again, that kind of thing is not something we would dwell on as, you know, terribly useful or the core of what we're going after. But that kind of stuff happens. Uh, my own teacher is Hoskar Roshi. I experienced that kind of stuff with him too. Uh, I'll give you another example. The, he was doing something called the Hojo Kata. The Hojo Kata are some sword forms that Omori Roshi, his teacher, did and passed down to some of his students as a way to cultivate energetics, posture, breathing, and so on, intense energy. And Hoskar Roshi practiced those. He was not a martial artist, but he practiced them. They're just Kata, two people doing slow movements. And the Kata are classed by the energetics of the season, spring, summer, fall, winter. And he was doing the winter Kata. And watching him, I found myself going into a Samadhi condition and he exhaled and I immediately felt that the whole room was filled with snow and ice. And as I looked at him, I saw his face become Omori Roshi's face, his late teacher. And then it, it all wiped away. I mentioned to, to him after, mentioned it to him afterwards. Turned out I wasn't the only one who had that same experience in the room. And he kind of chuckled and said, yeah, you know, Sometimes stuff happens, <laughs> but you know, how, how would I describe that situation or that experience? He was so embodying a kind of energetic quality of his late teacher that something transformed and so embodying the energetic quality of that particular form that you felt the coldness in the room of winter. I can explain it to myself that way. I have no idea what really happened. And I don't think it was something he was consciously doing. So city, not city, makyo, not makyo. Interesting. Strange, strange stuff happens. Remarkable. These are the sorts of stories one associates typically with uh, you know, Tantric Buddhism in Tibet. And so to there's a lot them... of these stories with Zen practitioners too, a, yeah. lot, a lot in the Rinzai tradition. I, but again, I think because there's a hesitance to focus on those things in Zen, uh, they don't get the play perhaps as much as they do in other traditions. Thank you for being so generous with your time. And this next question I'm going to ask, not knowing if you're the sort of person who will answer this question. I know some people will and some people won't. So please feel free to rebuff me. But seeing as we're talking about the uh, mystical end of practice, there's a great tradition in Zen, it seems, of stories of Kensho, stories of awakening. Uh, 
and uh, many of the great patriarchs moment of awakening and often as you point out in relationship to their teacher at that time are recorded and used in teaching situations what's the story of your kensho my first experience my first awakening mm. uh, <clears throat> i have no problem to talk about that stuff um and the first one was not the most profound one by far but it was very interesting even in terms of the subject of direct pointing uh, i was working on my first koan which is i was working on the koan the question who am i my first koan wasn't move actually it was who am i and i was working on that for over two years and uh we had a sashin coming up Oscar Roshi was coming i was living with toda sensei in his training hall at the time and i was really whipping myself into the koan trying with all my might to hold it seamlessly every moment of every day every night going down by lake michigan living in chicago at the time sitting on the rocks and going into it going into it just determined i had a, some kind of determination came up the conditions were correct for that and at some point i was i guess i was walking around like a zombie as one may do in that state it's not uncommon to arrive at that kind of place where you're walking around looking a little psychotic uh trying to hold the koan so completely uh, you don't know where you are, you don't know which direction is up or down, and so on. And Tore-sensei saw me that way. And he said to me, uh, Keith, my birth name, Keith, it was before I was ordained. Keith, what are you doing? He said, I'm you know, slowly bringing the words out, I'm working on the core. And he said, what you're looking for is nothing special. The moment those words hit me, I felt a weight fall off my shoulders that I had never felt. I felt completely clear. And the rest of that day, I kept working on the koan. I fell asleep that night working on the koan. The next day, Sashin was to start. That morning, I woke up still holding the koan. And at that moment, the answer, right after waking up, the answer arrived, something shattered. I got up and I my morning chores, I had to vacuum. So I was doing vacuuming. I'm like, this is really, I feel really amazing. <laughs> Something really different. And I went in to see Hoskar Roshi during Sanzen and uh, bowed, said, my corner, so I presented my answer. And he immediately saw. He immediately started uh, giving me the testing questions. I passed through most of them. I got hung up on one and passed it during the next Doksan. I was in the condition of samadhi, but the condition of samadhi itself was different because of that opening experience I had. So, so what's unique about that to me is it was very classic in the sense of um, required a certain amount of practice and drive to really go into the koan to bring it to that ripeness. Also, the words from Tore Sensei, that kind of what I would call a direct pointing moment where he could see and he said the word that I needed to cause that change. And then even the way that I arrived at the opening experience right after waking from sleep, the way I was able to hold it through the sleep state, it spoke to the way that I was working on the koan at the time. So it was a very good experience. I wouldn't call it profound. It was not a deep experience, but it was deep enough to, to serve as the basis and continue forward with the training. I had much more profound experience later, but uh, that was the first time. Very interesting to me. Would you be willing to talk about the much more profound experience. <laughs> okay. Uh, so actually I was attending a session with a teacher who is not my own. He's someone I consider a friend and a colleague at this point now. At that time I was not yet ordained, but uh, I was attending a Rohatsu session with him in Seattle actually. And um, 
it was a wonderful session because it was the first session I'd been to in a decade where I had no role. I was a guest there instead of one of the people helping to host it or one of the people with a job. So all I, all I had to do was sit. That was remarkable. Also sitting there was, um, at the same time, was Chiba Sensei, who was a Zen priest as well as an important Aikido master. He had a certain bot. Okay, so the conditions were pretty interesting. We're on Puget Sound, the late waves are in the background. Chiba Sensei is sitting right across from me. And all I had to do was go into my training. I wasn't even working on a koan. I just just going into my sitting as much as I could. And at some point I had, something started to uh, change, I could tell. And then suddenly I found myself in that classic white crystalline world. And I recognized, oh, and I just redoubled my effort at that moment. And I had the classic experience of the complete dropping off, being in the state of blackness, um, not knowing afterward how long I was in that state. The next thing I can recall is the sound of a wave crashing. So there was a sound that shattered that. And when I came out from that state, everything was different. And I felt incredibly free. Nothing could possibly hold my hold me back. All of my inner angst, anxiety, social anxiety, everything completely gone. I became a real asshole for a few months after that because I would just tell people exactly what I thought. I mean, I had the classic post-Kensho uh, asshole syndrome too. <laughs> and I needed people to rein me in. But incredibly, so free in a way I had never experienced. Uh, that was an interesting experience. I don't mind relating that one also because in my own experience, it replicated the classical description of Hakuin. Uh, so I found that so interesting. So he was really telling the truth that this kind of, that that's exactly what, what happens. Uh, it was neat, neat to have that happen. Remarkable, yeah. I mean, you took the training in its full form from people who embodied the lineage in its fullness. And so it's, in a sense, no surprise that you had experiences that are reminiscent of the patriarchs in that sense. I guess so, yeah. You know, I've, I've had a lot of small experiences. Hakuin famously said, I don't know, he had so many major Kencho and multiple minor ones. I seem to be someone who has those kind of small breakthroughs. But the one I just related to you was the was the one where the bottom really dropped out, I guess. And when that settled, when the asshole phase finished, what were the <laughs> what were the consequences in terms of the uh, the change that that experience wrought? I don't know if the asshole part has changed, but uh, it's, it's, it's toned down a bit. Uh, just really, really a sense of freedom, um, less self absorption, a, a lasting condition of lessened self absorption, and. Uh, lasting feeling of being able to move through space and engage in activities completely present with them. Uh, you know, I don't want to speak about it from the standpoint of Buddhist philosophy or anything like that, but just in terms of experiential understanding or the, exper the experience of it, not so much fear. Uh, someone who lived their life with various kinds of fear and anxiety and the most of that gone. Really, there's still some habitual stuff in the body to dissolve, but the the core habit of it seemed to have just imploded somehow. Uh, I didn't feel afraid of dying, of situations, of of anything. Really, doesn't mean I'm a person completely without fear. Okay, I'm not claiming that, but the, that real core nugget of it, which I think sat in my chest like a stone from early childhood 
just seem to have gone. Meta Roshi, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's really fun to talk to you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.